Welcome to Students Incorporated, a podcast exploring the topics of business, education, technology, and design. I'm your host, Mr. Jason. Join me weekly as my team and I produce content that's informative, positive, fun, and uplifting. Episodes include student conversations, interviews with thought leaders, and inspirational stories with an international flavor. This podcast is created and produced with the help of students from the International Community School of Bangkok. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our show. I'm Mr. Jason, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Primi. We also welcome our special guest, Mr. Andy, a multi-talented and uniquely gifted speaker and educator. We'll get into some of his history and journey from early jobs and careers until now, where he's an experienced history teacher. We'll also be discussing some significant events in history that have shaped the world as we know it today. But first, let's hear the quote of the day and get some headline news. Our quote of the day comes from Leon Brown. He said, History repeats itself endlessly for those who are unwilling to learn from the past. This quote emphasized that history can repeat itself for those who refuse to learn from the past. They fail to recognize the patterns and lessons that can guide them towards a better future. By neglecting history's warnings and insights, they become trapped in a cycle of repeating the same mistakes again and again. We can break free from this cycle by acknowledging the past and learning from it so that our path forward is full of progress and growth. And that's our quote of the day. And now onto some historical news you have probably never heard of. Our first historical news piece comes out of Australia. I bet you've never heard of the Emu War? Well, here's what's happened during the Emu War. Emus in Australia were destroying large amounts of crops after an unusual migration in 1932. Farmers were allowed to shoot the emus to protect their land, but there were just too many of them. Three members of the Royal Australian Artillery decided to bring along two machine guns with them in an attempt to hunt the emus. However, the operation was were a failure, and the emus evaded them every single time, thus marked the victory of the emus in the emu war. Our second news piece is about a disaster that happened in Boston, Massachusetts. And you've probably never heard of it. No, it's not the famous Boston Tea Party. In 1919, a storage tank containing 8 million liters of molasses burst, sending waves of sticky and sweet syrup into the streets of northern Boston. The wave of molasses measured several meters high and traveled at high speeds, destroying buildings and trapping people. It then hardened in the winter cold, making rescue efforts even harder. And our final news piece is about the River Thames Frost Fairs. During a period of harsh winters, wind in the UK, people organized fairs on the frozen river Thames, where multiple events took place, such as sledding, skating, horse racing in place. Even King Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth I had gone to visit some of these fairs, going about and purchasing goods from the many vendors set up on the frozen rivers. In this first segment, we welcome Mr. Andy and we'll hear a little bit about his journey from early jobs, lessons learned, and now what he's doing today. Premi will start us off with our first question. We'll start off with a few lighthearted questions. Our first question is, which historical figure would you like to have lunch with? And you can choose anyone. Anyone. That is a great question. Almost for sure, my answer is going to change depending on when you ask me, uh, depending on what month or what year. But I think right now, uh, the person that, that comes to mind would be uh, Martin Luther, the reformer. Uh, such an interesting individual and uh, had recently been studying uh, the Reformation and 
he I just think he'd be the kind of guy that would be a really enjoyable uh, conversationalist, and it would be a lot of fun to kind of hang out and, and hear him. He might be a little bit annoying, to be honest, but it, it would also be really interesting to hear him because he's kind of a passionate individual. All right. So the next question is, if you could go back in history and tell your past self just one thing, what would it be? I, To be honest, I think that what I would tell myself was to have more patience with my children. I think that's one of the things that I often think back and regret the most, which kind of funny. It is a historical lesson in that it's only something I've realized as I've gotten older and I think back about certain experiences, but man, that is definitely one that I wish I could uh, tell myself. Yeah. And now moving on to our, to your own personal history, what were some of your past jobs and work experiences like? Oh, thanks for asking that. That's, I have had a lot of jobs actually. Yeah, so I'd love to hear about them. Okay. <laughs> I thought the first one that I actually, one of my very first jobs was as a gymnastics coach. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was a gymnast, like a recreational gymnast. And then I thought I wanted to try to compete. And so I, I went to a, a club that had a, a, a competition team and I tried out and they, I, I got, I got a spot, but I had to make a decision because it was going to be a super long period of commitment, like each day that oh. I would have to go and train and it would kind of, kind of take over a little bit. And yeah. so I decided not to do it. And instead, where I was learning, um, I started coaching. And I still would, would you know, work out and enjoy uh, learning, but I started coaching. And then from there, I ended up coaching kind of for a long time, actually, and then through high school. And then later, after college, I uh, started coaching again when I was in uh, graduate school. But this time it was in, like, a gym where they had some really good competing like competitive athletes that would travel the, around the nation and compete and it was a, a, an amazing learning experience because I was working with people who like that's you know their their profession right and um, it was it was really amazing how much I didn't know but uh, also one thing that it helped me develop all of the years of coaching gymnastics was how to manage groups of people groups of students actually and uh I can one lesson that I'll never forget is one of the coaches that I worked with. He also actually happened to be a PE teacher and he would just come in and coach a certain team like a couple of times or like most nights of the week, but it was just like he had a special team and he coached. And I remember him saying, Andy, no one pays for their kid to come stand in line. And it was like a philosophy of like, mm -hmm. how do you manage this group of people? Even if there's lots of people around, you know, they're there to learn. And they should be given the experience to work. And uh, I think that's really stuck with me, even in my teaching. Like to have people just kind of wait, that waiting in line is not a very healthy <laughs> or good way to manage people or to help them learn. Mm. So that was something that was an uh, important lesson. Uh, a, another job that I had, um, I worked for, I was uh, the operations manager for the Los Angeles office of a corporation called Quest Drape. And uh, we set pipe and drape and no one has ever heard of it, but almost everyone's seen it. So if you've ever watched um, a political figure speaking on TV, mm -hmm. usually when they're at like a hotel or a conference center, um, you'll they'll see they're almost always in front of like a blue drape. 
uh, or if you see like a big event, like one that comes to mind, like when Coca-Cola released Coke Zero, they'll have these huge screens up. They'll be in a big theater, like uh, this one event we did, which was at the Hollywood and Highland Theater. It's called the, oh, Dolby Theater now, I think. Mm. It used to be the Kodak Theater. Mm. But uh, we would go in and set drape between the screens and behind the stage. And it was it was an awful job, actually. I <laughs> much. It's not that it was an awful job. It just wasn't really my personality. Yeah. And so it was one of those situations where we were excellent at it. I, the corporation as a whole was. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a, a return client rate that was unheard of in the industry. Oh, wow. But that was mainly because, I mean, you were taught you you pretty much don't ever say no. Mm. And even even if it was unsafe oh. uh, or not possible, you figured out a way to do it so that it was safe and possible. And if it wasn't quite what was expected at first, you had to learn to convince them that is really the best way to do it. So it taught you to work with people and you, it taught me to work with people in new ways. And you had to be really patient. But I was actually the operations manager. So I was also like operating like crews of people and right. kind of thing. And um, so that that organization level was was good for me, but um, the demand on the managers was enormous. It was exhausting, and uh, it, it took me away from home like regularly. It was the first cell phone I ever had oh. was given to me from work. The first laptop I think <laughs> uh, was given to me by work. They but it was just ways that you could try to like work. They you worked all the time. And uh, so it was good. It was it was a good uh, learning experience, and it was actually an amazing way that God provided for my family at the time. So in that way, it was a blessing. But it also helped me to realize this is not what I want to do forever. <laughs> so it kind of encouraged me to get back into teaching again. Actually. All right. So this transitions well into the next question. Can you tell us a bit about your personal journey into education and why you decided to focus on teaching and specifically the subject of history? Yeah, this is one of those funny stories. So uh, because I had had so much experience working with kids, working with students as like a gymnastics coach. And then I would I I worked at the Y and I would like work at um, sports camps and things occasionally over the summer. And I also came from a big family. So you know, either my sister or myself, we were babysitting, you know, our kids or friends, families, this kind of thing. I was so burnt out on working with kids. And I can remember um, our oldest son who um, I, I adopted. So like the aging, the timing is kind of odd here, but I can remember I, I went into the school, the classroom where he was going to school and I picked him up and he was in first grade, I think at the time. And I remember walking into the classroom and thinking, I never want to do this. Like I, yeah, this is awful. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was quite some time. So actually I, I went to, I went to seminary, which is, um, usually people who go to seminary are going to be, um, like, like ministers or like kind of professional church leaders, like pastors. And, um, I knew I wasn't going to be a pastor, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to go to school and study and I loved it. And, well, I, I can remember thinking afterwards, or actually while I was there, I remember hearing these guys. One one was like a doctoral student at a, at a different university, but he was teaching some classes there. And some of the other guys were talking and and they were saying, you know, if I if I, if it ever changes and I'm not working full time in like pastoral ministry, I really think like the most amazing job would be a history teacher. And I remember thinking about that, and then the 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 
the seminars and the classes that I took that talked about the backgrounds of like the New Testament and the backgrounds of the Old Testament, I mean, I just, I love those. Those just kind of like inspired me to like think this is so amazing to oh better, even if it's just a little bit, to better understand what life was like or what was happening in the world at the time that these things that we are so familiar with happened. It just sheds a whole new light on it. And uh, I loved it. And so I that stuck with me. But then I ended up actually teaching PE at school, my first teaching job in at ICS. But I don't know if you knew Mr. Darren. He used to be the headmaster of ICS for a long time. This was forever ago. So I'm going to say like maybe 1999 or 2000. He was a history teacher. And I remember we were having lunch one time and I mentioned that it would be great to teach history. And he said, you know, Andy, you'd make an, a, a great history teacher. I, I don't know why he told me that. Like, I don't know why, like, where that came from. But it, it, again, it stuck with me. And uh, so then over the years, when I got back into teaching later, it was teaching elementary school. But I kept that in mind. And uh, I think I just needed some time to grow and mature. And then I, when I got the opportunity, I jumped on it. And I have never regretted teaching history. I love it. Absolutely love it. And it's been uh, one of those like great choices and amazing experiences to have students that I get to talk about history with all the time. So we know that history, there's different subjects of history. Yeah. So what are some of the classes of history that you teach? And do you actually have a favorite class yeah. that you teach? So currently, I'm only, I only teach two courses, and they're both world history courses. And uh, one is called... Uh, advanced placement world history. And I, I love that class. I love it because of uh, the depth that we get to go and the way that students are challenged to grow and to think. Uh, it, it is an exciting, super exciting class. And it's way worth the, the effort. So students, you see this this growth in them throughout the year. So at the beginning, they're a little bit miserable and they, they don't mind telling you. And it's hard. And you, I even tell them at the beginning, there's just no way around this. And uh, by the end of the year, uh, I hear comments frequently like, I can't believe it. I've, I've read this entire textbook or uh, they'll come back to me. Students will come back to me in, in years later on and say, hey, Mr. Andy, I, I use the skills that I learned in that class in all of these other classes. And it, it's just stuck with me. And I, that really excites me because I feel like they've, they've grasped some, some understanding about how to think about the world that's impacting what they do, if they're studying engineering, if they're studying literature, it doesn't matter. It gives them an opportunity to kind of think differently about people. I love that. And I definitely really, like last year when I, when I started, it was like, no, 20 pages each weekend. Mm -mm. But then at the end of it, like, I love that. I really, and I feel like I, I did like learn a lot so much. And then all the skills that come with it too, like synthesis and then yeah. like everything. So, yeah, definitely. It was an experience. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad yeah. you like it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, on the same idea of favorites, if you could choose to live in a specific time, period, or era in history, which one would you choose and why? This one's going to be good. I always disappoint people with this question. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just going to tell you ahead of time. There are so many, like, moments in time that I am so fascinated with. Mm -hmm. Like, I would love if I could go and experience maybe for a little while yeah. certain eras like the early early century ce mm -hmm. or uh the the early modern era of mm -hmm. um 
you know, like like that 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 time of great change, like during the Reformation, that that brings like an immediate and important impact into our world today. It would be so fascinating to see that. But to be honest with you, it would be dangerous and it would be difficult and hard and life probably wouldn't be that great. And uh, I, I, I'm so thankful for modern medicine. And <laughs> I, I really think that I, you. <laughs> I would not want to live any other time than now. I, I mean, not if I had to go and stay forever. Because mm. right, I, I right. feel like, no, of course not. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to have a romantic view of it. But the reality is that it would be most likely I would not be an elite and I wouldn't have access to... Um, you know, yeah, the, like the basic, basic life. Basic. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so it's, I think we live in a, you do. a pretty amazing time for the most part. It would be fascinating. Maybe, maybe you could, if you could go and see for a day, maybe. Yeah. I am curious though, if you were able to go back for a day and visit a specific period in time, yeah. which would it be? Ooh, I would, I am really interested. I would love to kind of visit um, the like, like what is today Turkey? So like on the on the Mediterranean, um, just some of these 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 old cities, yeah, uh, would be so fascinating to see that kind of mixture of that like Roman and Greek life, but with peoples that are maybe partially that or not that at all, and all living together in that mixture, and then just to visit some of the early Christian thinkers that uh, are so impactful for the later development of of ideas. It would be so cool. I, I think that would be pretty amazing. That's the Silk Road comes through there as well. It right? does. It's it sure does. Yeah, and it's right there. And people. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. one that comes to mind. Um, I mean, there are a couple of other instances that would be really fascinating to see, but not to have to stay very long at. So like some of the, the locations where revolution broke out during the Atlantic revolutions would be really fascinating to see and meet people. And recognize the diversity that was happening in all of that change, it would be really cool. But again, it would be really risky to stay (laughs) at either time. Okay, well, shifting a little bit, here's more of a specific question about your teaching methods. Uh, Is it difficult to incorporate and encourage diverse perspectives into the teaching of historical events? I'm not a history teacher, but I assume it would be somewhat difficult, like, incorporating different perspectives it is super difficult and and what makes it really challenging is that i teach survey courses Mm. meaning that we have to span uh we have to sacrifice depth for for um for like width if you will for like the amount of material we have to cover which makes my subject um very difficult and it's currently sort of a debate in in among academics in this area of world history like, how do you manage to create a story, like a narrative, when you have so much of the world to cover in so little time? So that makes, uh, like, really understanding the diverse perspectives super challenging. And that's why usually historians, uh, this is changing a little bit, but usually they focus on uh, a single region or field of history, often even a certain time period, almost always. And then later in life, when they've been working for a long time, they, they begin to expand and explore. Like a lot of our like major world historians today actually were educated and focused and trained on a specific field in a different way and then later grew into it. Now there are, it is changing a bit because of the popularity of world history and you can actually just focus on that. 
but it makes for this diverse perspective really challenging. And so we, as, as world history teachers, have to rely on the authors that do go deep, and we have to try to pull that in and say, okay, what was it like for women in this era? What was it like for a minority group living in that region that I talked about, say modern-day Jerusalem, at the time that the Ottoman Empire ruled that area? Because you'd have people of different ethnic groups and religious groups, and what was that like? Uh, or what I just recently conducted some research on um, Jewish people in, in England during the time of King Edward, and he's the first European king to expel the Jews from an, from a whole kingdom. And uh, so that that that's called social history when you're like studying what was it like for the, the Jewish people living in that culture. And then, um, of course, I was looking at it from like kind of motivations or reasons for that, but it intermixed. So yes, sorry, it is difficult to kind of yeah, get those, yeah, like those yeah. perspectives in. Uh, one follow-up question to that. How important is the curriculum in helping to do this? I know you talked about that you have to cover a lot in a very short a period of time. And I think you even talked about pulling in like other authors and stuff, mm -hmm. but is that curriculum something that you can kind of like change a little bit or yeah. what's that look like from a teacher standpoint? So actually, this is the cool thing is as a, as a history teacher, we kind of have the freedom. We're working with concepts, ideas like historical developments, but the history of those historical developments is complex. So we have the opportunity to draw on various sources to use in our classes. But it's important that we don't mislead students as well. So one way I try to explain this or show this to the students is we look at the Mongols when they're creating an empire. And we'll read modern historians and ancient accounts of that and try to determine, well, what's the deal here? Are they horrible? Are they like an awful destructive force in world history? Or are they actually beneficial mm -hmm. to the progress of world history, at least in the long term? And students have to recognize, oh man, there's different perspectives on this. Right. Even amongst people writing today, there was different perspectives amongst people writing in the time of the Mongols. And so it the demands that they realize, I probably shouldn't use the word demands, but encourage them to realize that this is complex and yeah. kind of messy. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's history. Yeah. And here's our last question for this first segment. For you personally, what historical event or events have had a significant impact in shaping your perspective on life and other things? So I've I've been challenged by certain individuals who had a, 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 a strong grasp on the importance of, um, of, of studying and learning and trying to kind of pursue excellence, uh, as well as the idea of it being sort of honorable to... Uh, to to live to have integrity. So, in other words, like as I'm I'm a Christian, and so I, I I think that it's important that I have integrity as a as a way to try to be honest with others. And uh, so, certain individuals have kind of impacted me on being being humble, but being like diligent. And so that impacted me when I was working jobs I didn't like, and that's impacted my work in jobs that I do like. That it's worth the effort just because it's a way to do something excellently. And uh, maybe, you know, I know everyone's in different circumstances at different times, but that's something that's been impactful for me. And then just recently, um, I've been learning about, uh, or I was uh, about half a year ago studying 
the Reformation in, in the early modern era, the, the Christian Reformation. And it's astounding to learn about um, the change in history and how many sort of um, legends is maybe the wrong word, maybe myths I should use that we believe about that time and what was taught. And when you spend some time in that era and with those individuals and with people that have studied them, you recognize, oh, wait, a lot of what I've believed or been taught is a myth, even from what these individuals said, and it's developed over time. And so again, it's reinforced that studying that era has reinforced the importance of having humility and not demanding I know or I'm right, uh, but recognizing that I have a lot to learn, even if I'm maybe a little more familiar with a certain period of time than others. But that's had a kind of a big impact in me. All right. Thank you so much. And that ends our first segment. We'll be right back after this short PSA announcement about a famous Thailand fruit festival. If you like fruit, listen up. Festivals in Thailand during February are an exciting time for both locals and tourists to indulge in the abundance of delicious and exotic fruits. Known for their vibrant colors, unique flavors, and mouth-watering sweetness, Thai fruits are an integral part of the country's culinary culture. One such fruit festival is the Durian Festival, which celebrates the king of fruits. Durian is renowned for its pungent aroma and creamy texture. During this festival, visitors can sample a wide variety of durian types, each with its own distinct taste and texture. Attendees can also enjoy durian-themed desserts, snacks, and even durian-infused beverages. This festival also showcases the use of durian in some traditional Thai cuisine and desserts. So if you have never tried durian before, Thailand is the best place to visit. We are back with part two. In this segment, we'll be having a discussion with Mr. Andy about the concept of history repeating itself. Does history really repeat itself? And to keep this conversation going, we'll come up with four main historical themes. Premi will introduce the first theme. Okay, the first topic or theme under the idea of history repeating itself is intellectual and religious history. So to get us started, our guiding question for this first theme is, how have some recurring patterns in intellectual and religious history shaped current events on faith and reason? This is a big question. I'm a little intimidated with it here. Let me uh, let me start by saying this is a good this is a good question about does history repeat itself? Because um, probably a lot of listeners have heard or been told that we study history so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. But the very first lesson that I give to my students is that I'm going to ask you that question on a test. And if you tell me that, you will get a bad, you'll get a bad grade on that. <laughs> we don't study history. So we, in order to not repeat the mistakes of the past, because uh, it, we, it, societies like never really stopped repeating the mistakes of the past, if you will. Uh, but the question about history repeating itself is really somewhat philosophically complex because history is the story of people and people are individuals and they're influenced by various factors and the decisions that they make are impossible to predict. So when we when we say it repeats itself, I think we mean like, oh, uh, we see sort of cycles in um, the, the, the rise and fall of government systems or political systems. 
or we see like the spread of religious faiths at different times and over different places. And those things don't seem to stop. And I guess I would argue it's probably because they're about people and we're human beings. And so we have similarities regardless of the era in which we're living. So for social and intellectual or intellectual and religious history, um, I'm really keen on this because I love uh, the history of thought and the way people think about things and how that's traveled through time and impacted or, or been expanded upon over time. And uh, it has definitely impacted current views on faith and reason. So one of the beautiful things about studying history is that it gives us insight into peoples that we don't know or that we don't know well. And in our world today, some hot topic faiths are going to be Christianity and Islam. But when you have an opportunity to study about the developments of those religions and you learn about historically maybe how they've spread, who's embraced them, who's rejected them and why, it gives you insight into the way people have been brought along and what they might think today. We have to be careful not to stereotype the way those people think. That's really important because, again, they're all individuals. However, those, those faith systems have like doctrines of belief. And by understanding them and how they've developed, it helps us to understand people a little bit. And so sometimes we're careless and sometimes our are people that we see in the media or, you know, on, on, on TV or political leaders or what have you are occasionally careless as well in the way they sort of stereotype peoples that are others, if you will, the way they talk about other people. And so I think it gives us some insight when we see the development of religion and intellectual thought over time of how people have grappled with ideas and how they've influenced the way we think today. So easy for us to understand on a basic non-threatening level is the idea of like enlightenment thought, intellectual history, all of us, the way we think today is, or at least the way we think at ICS and in many countries, um, they, they have ideas that people are responsible for their choices and for their behaviors and what they learn and that they should have the freedom to be able to make those choices. And this idea of freedom of choice and like religion, so crossing that intellectual and religious uh, themes is, is really an idea of of the new of an of this era of of the modern era, if you will, and that uh, people are and should be given that right. We call it now. People will call it a natural right, or you know, a God given or an alienable right. These are different ways I hear of it, but that hasn't always been the way people have thought about that. And so, it's uh, really helpful for us to get a grasp on the roots and to see how it's changed over time to give us a responsible outlook in the present. That's really good to just point to the fact that history is full of humans, right? mm. and so the human, the human is part of that element from the past to the present and the future. Okay, so now onto our second topic and theme. It is social and cultural history, and our guiding question for this theme is: How have major social and cultural changes shaped community identities, and what can we learn from them today? Okay, this is a great question. Uh, the social and cultural history is super important. And changes in, in cultural history that have led to the cultures that we experience today um, are, are, are many and complex. Mm -hmm. And so being able to kind of focus on how they developed 
helps us better understand why people behave the way they do. So this is sort of one of those main reasons for studying history that I tell students is that it enables us to understand societies and peoples. Yeah. Why do they behave the way they do? And we can learn that from studying uh, the, the, the culture and society. And it also gives us the like kind of the life of history. Like mm -hmm. so much history, we think right away, you know, can I name all the presidents of the United right. States or all the prime ministers? Right. Or all the wars. Maybe. That's oh, right. All yeah. the wars. It's, it's, you know, people will talk about the great men of history, right. but that is such a small snapshot of what reality was for so many people within those times and places. And so the study of the cultures, the study of the societies of the various eras, just fill out a picture that provide a better insight. Absolutely. And sometimes we get maybe even a clearer insight into why things were done than even individuals had in that time period, because we can draw now on so many sources from that era that people in that era may not have even had. So I think we have a responsibility to spend some time thinking about it and trying to understand people better. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to remember like, what you said earlier. I love how you say like history of thought, mm -hmm. right? Like how people have been thinking or like evolving. I love philosophies. I love, I love this. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I feel like a lot of times when you study like history, it's like the important people in history or like the important wars, right? But like less so like how society functioned back then or like different societies or different cultures. I feel like that is often overlooked when you're learning history sometimes. So absolutely. Okay, and now on to our third theme is on the same topic of history repeating itself. It's technological revolutions. Our guiding question for this theme is, have technological revolutions transitioned human societies and what can they teach us about navigating the future? So technological change or technological development is actually a key theme that the students in my class have to think about mm. in each era of history. Yeah. Because along with the interactions of societies, uh, there has been exchanges of culture, of, of thought, of learning, but there has also been uh, an exchange of technology. And technology has continuously um, developed and gotten uh, yeah. What's the word I'm looking for here? More um, complex uh, and, and sophisticated. Right, right. And so even from earliest times, we see technology developed to solve problems. And people, when they interact, they spread that. So, so there are big moments, though, that we focus on as eras of technological change. And we can think of like the age of exploration. Like, why is it that all of a sudden individuals from Western Europe could get on a boat and travel around the world. Well, they were only able to do that from learning that had developed for a long time. And then they put together these tools, these technolo technological advancements to create even more technological advancement. So a ship that they used would have tools like a compass and an astrolabe. It yeah. has certain sails, like a square sail and a Latin oh, sail. Yeah. That's right, exactly. And then the ship would be designed a certain way so they could go places that people couldn't easily go before. All of a sudden, they could do things that the majority of the world couldn't do or do as easily, and it gave an advantage. We constantly see this change. So then we'll see, again, moments of great change, like during the Industrial Revolution, where technology will fundamentally change people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. It leads to Absolutely. urbanization, yeah. and it learns, leads to uh, a, a new way of work mm. and, and, and family life and everything. So... In our present day, we're experiencing technological change. Well, actually, 
Um, we're seeing it happen so rapidly, we hardly have time to respond to it. And so what I think is, is healthy is putting the humanity back into our perspective. And you're going to easily get a ton of people who kind of preach messages that are scary. Mm-hmm. It's changing so fast, it's going to overcome this or overcome right, that. Right, right. People have often been afraid of technology. So even during mm-hmm. the Industrial Revolution, yeah. people fought against it because they thought it was taking away jobs. Mm-hmm. And we see the same thing happening now. You know, we think right. about like AI. Uh-huh. And so, oh, wait, I can get that to write that for me. Do I need to learn to write? Mm-hmm. You know, But because we're dealing with people... Um, that they're the change makers and they're the creators of even the technology and we have a responsibility to use it wisely. And so in my perspective, the way we think about it, instead of letting it drive us with fear, I think it should help us to be proactive in approaching it in a, in a fashion that helps us to improve maybe our interactions with others, but maintains that, that human driven purpose and aspect behind it. Okay, that this brings us to our fourth and final topic, and this theme is about the rise and fall of empires. That sounds like a video game, actually. So the theme is the rise and fall of empires. Our final guiding question on this theme is, what are some things that cause empires to rise and fall? Are there patterns, and what does this tell us about today's world powers? Yeah, so this is actually one of those uh, topics that maybe fits the idea of repetition or cycles in history so well. So there are actually some historians that have created a a model that they believe articulates like a a cycle, a rise and fall of empires. Um, But there's also other thoughts about the rise and fall of empires. So there's traditional thought, like in Chinese perspective, about the mandate of heaven and about an empire or a dynasty having the right to rule and losing that right to rule, and it being intermixed between earthly and heavenly authorities. And and really, even in Western thought, I think there's even been that perspective. So probably the most famous example would be the fall of Rome, uh, because people love to talk about how did why did Rome fall, and what, what happened, whose fault was it? And so there's so, so much written on that. But I guess... If we were going to try to pinpoint certain principles that often accompany the, the rise of an empire and then like the collapse of an empire, there there does seem to be certain attributes. Like an empire can't rise unless there are certain uh, there there's state forms that that have resources and military technology that can support that empire, and so that sort of encourages the rise of an empire. There's almost there's regularly almost always like an ideology that accompanies that empire that might be a religious thought perspective or it could be a philosophical perspective cultural one but that often helps to unify the 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 empire so even empires by definition govern over more than it's different than our our modern day perspective of a nation state that's very modern Empires usually governed over a varieties of people groups, and so their their legitimacy for governance is a little different than like um, nationalism, which would would kind of inspire na- modern nation states, people who share a similar culture and language and history. But the empires they would they would govern many people, so they'd have to be able to manage that. So they would have to have political forms that would manage these vast empires, and they needed resources, so they usually had to keep expanding. And then um, empires tend to get, I'm going to use the word lazy or corrupted or 
there tend to be certain people that prosper more than others. And then once they gain that prosperity and that wealth and that power, it's hard to get rid of. And they occasionally lose sight on um, some of the principles that help them achieve that success. And so that can contribute to the fall. Overextension, the, un- the inability to deal with people from outside of the empire, and it causes weakness and collapse and the cost of it and the lack of continued resources. These are some of the the normal sort of uh, explanations. And, and I think we can identify them in many empires. Whether they fit everyone, I, I can't say that. It's probably unlikely that you could define that for all of them. But um, that seems to be sort of a regular pattern. So in today's world, I think it's really important that people think carefully in... See, we're divided by nation states, right? And people that are outside of that nation state, we kind of look at differently. So our, our policies on immigration, our policies on resource use and where we're getting those resources uh, are important to think about for the stability of our present countries because they create turmoil and they create conflict with other peoples. And we have to figure out how to do that well, how to do that responsibly as we interact and govern at least a portion of humanity. Also, very good. Uh, the thing that will never change, and I think you'll like this one, Mr. Annie, is paying tribute, right? Taxes. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so that's right. That's yep. the thing that will never change in the rise and fall of empires. Yeah. All right. We're going to shift gears a little bit. So thank you, Mr. Andy, for helping us understand those topics and themes as it relates to our question, does history repeat itself? Now, to end this last segment, we've asked Mr. Andy, along with Premi and I, to help read a list we've compiled. We all know that history is full of bizarre and often overlooked events that can seem almost unbelievable. Events that have not repeated, at least that we've heard of. So with that in mind, and without further ado, we present the top 10 weirdest historical events not covered in Mr. Andy's history class. (laughs) Mr. Andy, you have the honor of starting us off with number 10. All right. Coming in at number 10 is the War of the Bucket in 1325. The War of the Bucket was sparked by the theft of a wooden bucket between the rival city-states of Bologna and Modena in Italy. This theft led to a battle in which thousands died. And number nine is the Dancing Plague of 1518, a case of mass hysteria in Brasburg, Germany, where hundreds of people danced uncontrollably for days without rest leading to numerous deaths from heart attack, stroke, or exhaustion. And number eight is the Great Stink of 1858. This was a period of time in London when the smell of untreated human waste in the Thames River became so unbearable that it led to significant investment in the city's sewer system. And number seven also happened in London. It is the Beer Flood of London in 1814. The rupture of a brewery vat sent a wave of beer pouring through the streets, killing eight people and destroying several houses. (laughs) Yeah, and now on to number six. It is the Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876. This event occurred when meat pieces fell from the sky in Bath Country, Kentucky. This phenomenon has never been fully explained. And coming in at number five is Operation Cat Drop in 1959. This was a campaign by the British in Borneo where cats were parachuted from the air to control a rat population that had grown following a campaign to combat malaria. Number four is the Green Children of Woolpit. 
sometime in the 12th century. It is said that this was the appearance of two children with green-hued skin in Suffolk, England, who spoke an unknown language and ate only beans. <laughs> and number three is the Pepsi fleet in 1989. In a remarkable trade deal, Pepsi Co. became the sixth largest military power in the world for a brief time when it acquired 17 submarines, a cruiser, a frigate, and a destroyer from the Soviet Union in exchange for its products. Number two is the Great Moon Hoax in 1835. A series of articles published in the New York Sun falsely reported the discovery of life and civilization on the moon by Sir John Herschel, a famous astronomer at that time. Finally, the number one weirdest historical event not covered in history class is the exploding whale on the coast of Oregon in 1970. A dead whale that had beached itself was deemed too large to bury, and authorities, authorities decided to use half a ton of dynamite to dispose of it. The explosion sent whale blubber flying through the air, damaging property and covering bystanders in the process. As we end this episode, I'm reminded of this thing my world history professor in college used to say. He basically said the best way to describe history is by defining it as his story. That's the idea that history and the stories recorded from the past were often shaped and narrated by those who had the power and means to do so at that time. I hope this episode encourages all of us to look deeper into history to find those missing stories. And in doing so, it may help all of us have an even better understanding of our past so that we can learn from it. And as always, this podcast would not be possible without the hard work and support of our international student production team. All music and sound effects are courtesy of Pixabay.com, a vibrant community of creatives sharing copyright-free images, videos, and music. And we are signing off until next time. We are Students Incorporated, because your voice matters. <laughs>